to help humanity change everything or let's say deepen its understanding of everything we know about what's in the nearest trash can. And I'm willing to bet my life that everyone listening is within a dozen or so feet of a trash can. Hey friends, welcome back to the Black Diamond Podcast. This is your host, Eric Malzone. And this is the show where I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing entrepreneurs, founders, change makers, and people who are just creatively leading the way through innovation. And it's not only about successes and, and great stories, because you'll definitely get those, but it's also about the personal challenges and the vulnerability that we face along the way. So this show is brought to you by Level 5 Mentors, helping entrepreneurs and founders achieve the highest levels of freedom in five different categories, time, money, relationships, health, and purpose. And if you wanna find out how you're doing in those five categories, we got you covered. We got a survey for that. Just go to level5mentors.com forward slash survey. And you can take the free entrepreneurial survey and see how you're doing in each category and see where you have room for improvement because hey, we can always be improving. So welcome to the show. Let's get on to it. We're live. Jay Toops, welcome to the Black Diamond Podcast. Good morning, Eric. Hi. So I am excited for this. This is, uh, I think you and I, let's see, today's, uh, it's the beginning of 2021 here. We're in January 5th and you and I connected a few months ago. And during that conversation, you blew my mind uh, about <laughs> what you're doing with BioRoots and your background and the sheer potential of what you're doing to reshape I guess humanity, is that too big of a thing to say? It's, I don't think it is, but yeah, man, just Jay, thank you for, for making the time. I know you're out also in uh, rural Montana. So for you to dial in, especially during a snow event in January to make it to this podcast, I really appreciate all the effort to do that as well. But yeah, let's start with this, man. Give us your background. how did you get to, to found BioRoots? And then we'll talk about what it is that you're actually doing now. You bet. BioRoot, our value proposition to the world is really straightforward. We're here to help humanity change everything or, let's say, deepen its understanding of everything we know about what's in the nearest trash can. And I'm willing to bet my life that everyone listening is within a dozen or so feet of a trash can. This is the elephant in everyone's room that seldom gets any, any currency in terms of discussion, public discourse. What are we doing with all of these materials? That never really comes up. And truth be told, if these were snakes, we'd be dead already. But they're not snakes, they're trash cans. So how how I came to found Bioenergy is a story in, its, in itself. I moved here from downtown Salt Lake City working as a technology uh, developer for the, a company called Novell. And Novell was a networking giant for many years and worked in their developer organization for many years and was good enough at my craft that I could pretty much work from anywhere. So I made that call to move from the urban environment to, we'll call it a, certainly a rural environment. I actually live in the Bitterroot National Forest, about 40 miles from the nearest traffic light at the end of a dirt road. I've been working from home for 22 years, and it is heavily forested here 
call it a dog hair forest for a good reason. It is a fire suppressed, overgrown forest of about two and a half million acres of trees and wildland urban interfaces around the Bitterroot Valley all the way up to Missoula and heading south uh, towards Salmon, which then is contiguous with the other national forests, the Salmon Chalice, the Bitterroot Selway, and the Beaverhead Deer Lodge. About a year after I moved up here, there was a major fire event uh, in year 2000 that burned about one half million acres. And that was a, I, I'd call it a traumatic event because it was, I didn't lose my property. I did have friends that lost theirs. And I had at one point fire on six points of the compass, three of them visible for more than a week. And it's quite a sobering event to watch trees crown fires going up consistently and watching ponderosa pines popping off like giant roman candles and watching your forest go up in smoke and the takeaway from that was what's wrong with this picture i understand that fire is part of the forest regime we need fire but why are these fires so intense and why are they damaging in ways that historically fires have not been typically fire is is a benign influence in forest regimes in taking out the undergrowth and what we'll call ladder fuels and so on and so forth. And in my due diligence, I discovered that we've been putting out fires for well over a century, being very aggressive with fire suppression at a national, federal, state, and local level. And that has led to essentially over this century to forest regimes that we don't really relate to pre-modern conditions where the average acre of forest may have had 20 mature trees on it. Now you may have as many as 200 or 300 trees all competing for space, sunlight, water, and so forth. And these are the tinderboxes of the unintended consequences of the policy nature of fire fire suppression. If you put out every fire, then fire does not have a chance to work at low intensity. And so what fires do happen are high intensity stand replacing or completely destroying forest environments. And we see this all over the world. I just happen to have a front row seat to it in the Bitterroot Valley. But Certainly what has happened in Australia a couple of years ago with 45 million acres lost, and in Siberia, which was at 48 million acres last summer, the events in California have certainly been a front row seat for 40 million California residents for what happens when climate is the forcing mechanism that is calling this all into question of does fire suppression work? Can we burn our way out of this with controlled burns? Can we reintroduce fire safely to to grasslands, forest lands, and so forth? Or do we need to do some mechanical treatment to reduce these fuels to appropriate uh, levels before we can reintroduce the traditional indigenous view of forest management of we can burn off this couple of hundred acres on a good day provided it doesn't spin out of control and the conditions are, are supportive of being able to have a low-intensity fire. BioRoot was formed to essentially put a price on what is typically piled and burned 
in forest uh, management or what we'll call fuels reduction. If somebody comes in, they brush and log a stand of forest, let's say along alongside a community, a wildland urban interface, there's typically going to be a lot of waste woody biomass, which is not marketable in today's markets, which is then piled and burned, typically at, at taxpayer expense. There is no value creation whatsoever. It is, of course, very dirty, and the it, it's essentially begging the, the do, does anything ever really go away when we burn it? And the answer is no. It right. goes to the sky. These carbons are converted from wood fibers to, to CO2 and the, the bevy of particulates that you would typically find in wood smoke, which is very toxic in its own. Fireroot is looking to put a price on carbon that spans the gamut from gases, carbonaceous gases like methane, carbon dioxide, also solid and liquid carbons, and that would be anything in a trash can, anything on a forest floor, and I'm going to, going, going to be a bit graphic and say anything in a toilet. <laughs> uh, the ability to price carbon by not leaving anything out and taking all of these uh, diverse carbons from diverse sources and, and training them in a zero emission synthesis process that essentially converts them from something nobody wants and we're all paying to get rid of in one form or fashion to something the world really needs, which are alcohols. And our business is the production, the synthesis of, of a range of alcohols that is then usable, eminently usable in any gasoline or diesel engine as a replacement for petroleum, and that would be either a replacement for unleaded gasoline or as a replacement for diesel fuels or jet fuel, what have you. These are water-soluble, biodegradable alcohols. They have enormous value. You can pour them on the ground or spill them on the ground, and instead of it being a life-ending event for whatever microorganisms are in that patch of ground, alcohols are actually food for microorganisms. If they can consume it because these are linear and simple alcohols. They are biodegradable in that sense. And that is our that is our chain of value creation that is extensible in every direction one cares to look. Every city has a landfill or it has a regional repository where wastes go to die, which they never really do. These these repositories of carbon are worldwide. They typically off-gas and decompose for hundreds to thousands of years, and it's no accident that landfills contribute about 15% of all of the atmospheric methane emissions in the world to, we'll call them fugitive emissions, along with similar volumes of CO2. So while we're all chasing gas reductions through, let's call them putative taxes on fossil energy to, to rein in energy emissions from, let's say, refiners and coal burners and so forth. There are these very diverse and dis, diffuse carbon repositories, which are, I don't want to say they're completely unregulated, but they are not well managed. The landfill is a study in, in how 20th century convenience has led to 21st century headaches. 
And that is our that is our value model on the ground for communities. And I would take Missoula, Montana, as a good uh, example of a a small progressive university-driven uh, city of 100 100,000 people surrounded by a very large amount of forest and rural communities. I live about 100 miles from Missoula, and when I put something in a trash can here, that's where it winds up. It, go, it has to be trucked to Missoula to go into the landfill. And, of course, it, it, it doesn't pay for anyone to truck their woody biomass if you're a landowner to the dump. People just pile it and burn it because it's more expeditious to just get rid of it on site by putting a match to it. I have four acres of trees in my my personal property here, and maintaining that four acres is a challenge, and uh, you do what you need to do, and conveniently uh, piling and burning is the, is the go-to method for these worthless materials. And I'm talking about pine needles, barks, branches, cones, small diameter trees, all the things that have no real value in the world. And I started the company to put a price on what people think of as worthless because it's not. It's, it's essentially a stored energy value whose value can be responsibly extracted. And the one caveat here is that it cannot be done at garage scale. You cannot build a gasification to gas the liquid fuel synthesis project in a garage or uh, a gas station or something like that. These are refinery scale builds that that are appropriate to the scale of the problems we're talking about for communities, for regions, for industries. So it is big, it is hairy, and the arrival of a new alcohol fuel in a world that has already seen what we'll call commodity alcohols like corn ethanol or sugarcane ethanol, people tend to think that's the end of the road for alcohols, when in fact it's really like Gen 1 and the Big Bang has really yet to happen. And that Big Bang is the thermal synthesis of all carbons to produce not just one alcohol like corn ethanol, which is the C2 molecule, it has two carbon atoms, Methanol, for example, has one carbon molecule. We will be producing C1 through C8 alcohols, which it checks all the boxes for what is the ideal liquid fuel, both in terms of energy density and the diversity of resources that can be used to produce it. And that is maybe one of our biggest inhibitors is there is nobody in front of us there is no competitive ecosystem around higher mixed alcohol fuel yet. We will be first, and it is harder to be first by an order of magnitude than it will to be second, third, fifth. And I will uh, rejoice when we see projects going up in major metropolitan areas, and I would take Mexico City, for example, with 25 million people. Mm. Will they ever run out of trash? The answer is no. Will they ever run out of a need for commodity alcohols to power engines to to produce chemicals, green biochemicals? The answer is no. Or will or for a need for cooking and heating? The answer is no. And so the forward-looking view of this is breathtaking for anyone who has time to 
wrap their head around it. And typically that is what we like to do with people is go slowly with due diligence and answer all questions because there are always a lot of them, or typically there are a lot of them, and work from that uh, basis of common understanding, fill in blanks as we go. So a couple of questions I have for you, Jay, is you mentioned corn ethanol, and what are those alcohol-based fuels being used for now? Like, what is the extent that people are used to using these alcohol-based fuels? Everyone who is driving um, a, a car in the United States that is using unleaded gasoline is typically consuming gasoline or burning gasoline, which contains up to 10% corn ethanol, which is used as a blend stock or additive to gasoline to essentially improve the tailpipe emissions. Alcohols are very energy dense and they're added to Corn ethanol is added to unleaded gasoline to essentially raise the octane level to avoid engine knock, which uh, people don't hear engine knock anymore. But there was a time before corn ethanol when the the oil refiners used something called tetraethyl lead to raise the octane rating and eliminate engine knock. And, of course, there was a big problem there because lead is very toxic. <laughs> and tetraethyl lead was taken out completely out of the gasoline supply by the mid-1980s. And that led to led the refiners and especially government and the EPA to look for additives that could raise the octane level of gasoline and replace replace that tetraethyl lead which had been removed and there were a couple of cursory attempts to by refiners to produce what is called methyl tertiary butyl ether which was another not so nice we'll call it an oxygen additive to gasoline that wound up contaminating groundwater it wasn't biodegradable it too was banned in the mid 80s which led and opened the door to the corn lobby for the corn lobby to present to washington a deal that washington really couldn't refuse because it's the corn lobby <laughs> but we can produce lots and lots of farmers can produce lots and lots of corn which can then be batch fermented using a beer kit method essentially just like you would make beer, wine, or whiskey, or excuse me, beer anyway, that, that the corn lobby could scale up corn ethanol, and that has happened, and, and they've enjoyed some success, but in, in that 20-year uh, period from the, 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 the first real scale-up of alcohols began in the mid-2000s with the Recovery Act under the Bush administration, and that was what really led to billions of gallons of corn ethanol being blended into the unleaded gasoline fuel supply. So everybody's driving alcohols already in small amounts. And, of course, every gas pump says uh, may have a pump that says may contain up to 10% corn ethanol. And in the Midwest, there are higher volume pumps. You may have 25, 35, up to 85%. Uh, corn ethanol and 15% gasoline, and uh, it, it's a function of supply. And just one problem: you're growing an annual crop to make beer, essentially, and then you take the water out, and what remains is one alcohol. 
and there's an inherent limitation there because, well, it's one alcohol, and two, it is only going in as fractional additive to unleaded gasoline. And what about the rest of the fuel pool, and that would be diesel and jet fuel, uh, unleaded gasoline uh, with benzene in it, premium gasoline may not have any ethanol. It will have benzene, which is cancer-causing, to raise that octane rating. There are a lot of holes in America's biofuel approaches because we've essentially picked the winner with the corn lobby producing corn ethanol. And this is mirrored by the situation in Brazil, which uh, Brazil is uh, even further down the road of producing ethanol from sugarcane and at much higher blend volumes. But the net effect is the same. You have plenty of land use issues by doing landscape scale cultivation of, in that case, sugarcane with the attendant runoff pollution issues. Here in the States, we've got dead zone problems in the Gulf of Mexico due to large scale soy and corn farming in the Mississippi River Valley. And all of that comes down the Mississippi River and the, the hypoxic zones in the northern Gulf of Mexico are tremendous. There is no oxygen there, so there is no life. And <clears throat> these are some of the, the issues that we will not be courting because we're, we will not be needing to grow anything. And, and what we're fond of observing is that we want everyone to think of this fuel as well, I'm a crap farmer, right? And what what does everybody produce? We all produce our share of crap. Yeah. <laughs> we get up in the morning, we have a bowel movement, and we, you know, we have breakfast, and we're opening packages, and it's all going where? Trash cans and toilets. Yeah. Which these are pass through mechanisms for out of sight, out of mind. Where do they wind up? They wind up right back in the environment that we're trying to keep from killing us. I say killing us because the, the looming question here is what are we going to do about climate change and emissions and air, water, and land pollution? You know, we have the luxury of landfilling a lot of materials in the United States. Other countries, we'll take Bangladesh, for example, and most of that country is right at sea level. It's very difficult to bury trash uh, at sea level because you're in the water table. And this is a, a desperate problem in much of Asia. There isn't good waste management. And even when there is good waste management, there are physical limits to where are we going to put all of this trash? Because in all honesty, when New York City has to rail trainloads of human excrement to Alabama to put it in a landfill, and we're not talking about trash, we're talking about just biosolids, human excrement, the final byproduct of wastewater treatment in Alabama landfills, the logistics of that are, they're daunting at best, and, and are, are they sustainable? The answer is absolutely not. And China's closing the door on the imports of recyclable scrap in 2018, they called it Operation National Sword was essentially the up years of China to the rest of the world saying, we've been your garbage processor for 20, 25 years. Now our middle class is big enough that we don't need foreign garbage. <laughs> so they turned off the 
imports. And this has essentially been the coup de grace on the recycling industry as we have traditionally understood it and practiced it. And the recycling industry is functionally dead in the water because that that go-to mechanism of exporting volumes, large volumes of materials is now gone. And so the pressure is on landfills in ways that are difficult to really appreciate until you begin to go study, let's say, the northeastern quadrant of the United States and study the landfill situation in those northeastern states. It is quite dire. And this is a pressure which is not going to be relieved uh, by any traditional means. There needs to be some end-of-life solution for all these carbons that is not currently in market, and that is our business. So fast forward for me, Jay. I don't know. Let's pick a timeline. Ten years from now, right? You got everything's running well for your projected timeline, your hopeful timeline. What what does that look like? What is this this technology going to eventually look like? Like, Paint us a picture. Let's talk about the economic multipliers. We have job creation at the local regional level in energy production, in waste management, in carbon management that is deeply empowering in ways that a country burning gasoline and maintaining a military force to secure energy resources from all the way across the world, maybe we're obviating more and more of that need to be the world's policeman to protect oil supplies because we have brought home and scaled up an energy methodology which is not only cleaner but long-term more profitable and beneficial for the citizenry that 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 just makes sense it's logical and uh, 10 years out we're talking about the development of projects in all 50 states that are proximal to the largest landfills in those states, or they are bioregional, they are centralized, so that logistics of, of feedstock transport, and feedstock as in waste, whatever those wastes are, to a centralized, centralized project, and the production of the fuel leaving that that uh, project, and then simply being dropped into the nearest onto the nearest highway in whatever vehicles have a need for it and fitting in nice with petroleum networks because there are some functional specifications with the fuel that are very important to understand. This fuel requires nobody to change any vehicles, gasoline or diesel. They stay the same. That's huge. Nor any changes to distribution infrastructure of petroleum. This fuel can be pipelined with or without oil. It can be what is called splash blended like corn ethanol with gasoline. Well, typically, corn ethanol is blended at the point of distribution because alcohols are water grabbers and, and they, they, they're disparate from oils. And in that sense, that we're also very different than corn ethanol. But back to the, where are we going to be in 10 years? Hopefully, we'll be a lot wiser about carbon. We will be challenging the assertion that there is a future in traditional waste management, which is something not many people really want to think about. How long has it been since you've been to a landfill? Just a couple of weeks ago. But uh, yeah, we don't pay for uh, 
trash pickup. So I, so it's, it's interesting because I resonate with this because once, when we did move to Montana, we, most of the places that we've rented so far, and when we build our house, we won't have trash service because I like to know how much trash we're producing and then having to take the extra step of driving it to the dump that because it is where you're talking about. Otherwise, you know, it's just too easy. Like you just don't, you don't recognize, wow. And then when you go to a landfill, you're like, holy cow, there's a lot of stuff being dumped in here every day. And here we are with the pandemic. This is gas on the fire is that, that the exponential nature of consumption and dumping. And now we're not leaving home. We don't know where all of this stuff goes, but of course yeah. it go to landfills or incinerators. And my other big beef here with the waste management industry is that it's nothing if not expeditious. When you run out of a landfill, you burn a you build a trash burner and burn trash. We are not a trash burning play. We're not a smokestack business. There are no smokestacks in mixed alcohol architecture, and it is functionally a zero emission process. This incineration is the go-to pathway for what's beyond traditional landfill. And this is practiced um, worldwide, especially in Asia and Europe. Europe has, for many decades, built waste-to-energy incinerators. The country of Sweden, for example, 10 million people, incinerates virtually all of its trash to make a little bit of power and a little bit of heat, which they have advantages for because Stockholm, which is the, the biggest city in Sweden, has a centralized heating district, which is very rare in the urban the urban landscape of what do cities. It's, every building is its own heat consumer and that sort of thing. So a centralized heating district is very rare. And at the end of the day, you still got about 30 to 40% of that material, which is hazardous ash, which is very toxic, which then must be landfilled somewhere. And we cannot burn our way out of this carbon mess with regard to municipal waste. And so the 10 years out, we're just getting started. We see it taking as long as 100 years to supplant traditional waste management with with this value creation model that uh, is basically a 21st century answer to a one of mankind's oldest problems is what do I do with my crap? <laughs> and the larger the scale, the more poignant the both the outcome and the rationale for having made these moves while we could still think about making these moves because that window is in danger of closing. We are in danger of toxifying this planet past the point of redemption. It is entirely possible for 7.8 billion people to poison this planet, you know, again, past our point of, of being able to hang on. If, if for no other reason that we've made conditions for life untenable at the single-celled organism level, that's phytoplankton all the way up to the top of the food chain, and that's us, and put everything at risk by essentially making water, air, and land toxic enough to, I don't want to say exterminate life, but this is before we even fry from climate change. 
So these threats, and, and, and this is a threat that I struggle to even get an audience in Washington with because the, the focus going forward, especially with the Biden administration, is going to be on on the reduction of emissions and not a whole lot of effort being given to the economics of carbon that is beyond gases. What are we doing with trash garbage, woody biomass, uh, which I started the conversation with, with biosolids, which is wastewater treatment and so forth. There isn't a lot of policy development along these fronts, and there's no infrastructure whatsoever other than these 20th century models, which are, I don't want to say they're, well, I will say they're horribly flawed and they're anachronistic. They're not congruent with the world that we need to live in, which is a zero-waste world. And that is our challenge as a company is, Blow as you use the word blowing people's minds. If we're not surprising ourselves, we're not really innovating because I think that's the the upshot here. There is so much innovation that can come of this that it, it, it would be a shame that I would say a real shame that we would blink and miss it because it's so big. So Jay, at this point in time, January 2021, what do you need? What's the most important thing for you right now to get this thing moving forward or continue we, moving forward? You bet. You bet. We need people to inform themselves. First and foremost, it, it, it's very difficult to work to, to raise capital and develop advisorial or advisor and board positions with people who... Uh, I don't want to impugn anyone's intelligence, but almost nobody knows what's in gasoline. What, are the, what is the componentry of gasoline, the, the actual compounds in gasoline? Because in my experience, if they knew what was in gasoline, they would cry and they couldn't use it. But nobody knows what's in gasoline because, well, gasoline is made on the fly. It's, it's made from whatever pieces and parts a refiner's got, and there can be as many as 100 to 150 different toxic compounds in a gallon of gasoline. So it's a moving target, and it's we're all spraying each other with raid. So th this is a real problem. The toxicity here of a tailpipe pointed back at you uh, in the car uh, in front of you is a very big deal. So informing oneself about future-friendly options, cleaner options, we are we start there because those are our strongest financial and community uh, partners or people who've done their own due diligence about is this a good thing and why and there's a, a keener understanding than than oh they're a biofuel company we're not a biofuel company this is not a this is not a, a me too biofuel this is a replacement for petroleum and a fix for garbage <laughs> that is, that consumes a large part of my outreach with people is just this infill of of there is potential here and here's why we should all slow down and wrap our heads around it and just imagine something uh, you're in Kalispell or near Kalispell uh, imagine a similar project servicing the entire Flathead Valley from Canada down to Missoula. Uh, 
and eating all of these waste carbons. And to put that in perspective, there is a uh, a tire dump in Polson, Montana, called the Tire Depot. It's on the Flathead Indian Reservation. It has about 32 million tires in the ground. They take in waste spent or old tires from six western states. And the carbon repositories are all around us. And so what I need are informed people who are, they put waste above the line in terms of, am I paying attention to this or not? They think maybe more like a producer and less a consumer dumper, as it were, because dumping is the out of sight, out of mind. It's not my problem now. It's the trash company's problem or what have you. And we are currently raising $2.5 million on our seed round. Uh, that is pursuant to about a $30 million Series A raise on Project 1. And Project 2 for us is about a $200 million project. And those first two projects will form the presumptive or prototype platforms for major, major build-outs in uh, large metropolitan areas like San Francisco, what have you, Seattle. And these will be uh, capex of in the billions um, because that is the scale of both the, the resource uh, availability and also of the addressable market. You, you've got to be able to produce large volumes of fuel at a price point that is competitive with gasoline and diesel. And that is that is the hat trick of going from small to to appropriate scale so that you, you may enter markets and address them financially and also I want to say ethically because there is this I think there's a real flight uh, in people's minds to I want to clean up my act but I don't know how right. and this is how I wish that it could be personal and my job of course is personal uh, running leading the company and being founder of the company but the identification with the problem need not be, well, start your own company. We can join an effort because we share a common set of risks. We all breathe the same water and use the same air and breathe the same air and drink the same water, pardon me. And we live on contiguous ground. And the health of these, these indispensable parts of the environment is everybody's business. How are we looking out for the dirt under our feet, the air over our head, and the water that courses through us and all around us, because rivers do run through <laughs> uh, a lot of life here in Montana, and indeed the human body. We are pretty much in flow with moisture in the air around us, the water. We have to consume so much water, and I'll shut up after saying that the chief, one of the chief byproducts of our synthesis process in the production of higher mixed alcohol fuel is pure distilled water. That's and, amazing. Yeah, there is a, there is going to be there. Are, you've got aquifers which are depleting the Ogallala in the Midwest, all over the world, in the California Central Valley. We can take wastewater and use three gallons of wastewater or gray water, and we use one gallon, we will consume one gallon of that wastewater in the production of the fuel and return 
two gallons as distilled water because our process is a superheated steam-driven process. And at the end, you've got water that can go back into the groundwater and recharge aquifers, or it can be bottled, it can be what have you. But that is the, I don't want to say the hat trick, but it's not just a fuel, it is a, a way of addressing some real physical needs that we all have and that, that are not going to change, uh, even with the advent and scale up of large amounts of electric vehicles. We will still be seeing internal combustion for many decades into the future and that there's nothing we can really do about that, but we can clean up the fuels and the CO2 offsets for higher mixed alcohol fuel. We use something called the GREET model, which uh, is a transportation life cycle emissions analysis developed by Argonne National Laboratories. And comparing mixed alcohol with unleaded gasoline, we see carbon offsets of, at the low end, 88% less CO2 on a life cycle basis to as high as 112%, um, depending on which feedstocks you're producing the fuel from. Um, but that is the entire life cycle of to wheels. It's not just the tailpipe. It is the embodied emissions of extraction, refination, distribution, and then end use. And we spank everybody. And this is what people, uh, when they understand that, they jump for joy because that is maybe the biggest missing piece of the renewable energy puzzle is a liquid fuel, which is congruent with today's world that nobody has to change anything, that this just works. And the... the that is our key value proposition for anyone looking at the emissions as the big uh, bugaboo. And, of course, it is, but it's not the only bugaboo. <laughs> right, right. Oh, man, there's, uh, I can listen to you talk about this all day. It's really exciting. It's, I don't envy the challenges of getting this out there. I think patience is the name of the game for you and persistence. Obviously, you don't have any shortage of that. So when people hear this and they want to get involved, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you, Jay? You bet. BioRootEnergy.com, B-I-O-R-O-O-T, energy.com, and our contact page. We do answer our own phones. <clears throat> we, have, we have all of the, the modern technology, <laughs> and, <clears throat> but we like to establish dialogue that is measured and, and deliberately moving through with what does this person know? What is their interest vector? And we'll pick up from that point because we're not just looking to bloviate. We're looking to get to know people who, and integrate with their understanding so we don't create any, any dissonance in terms of their awareness or their scientific understanding or of markets understanding there are a lot of pieces and parts to this and so we we try to work with everyone as an individual rather than treating people as herd animals and we love to form relationships because that's what it's going to take if someone does not if a, a, a potential investor does not trust us it means that we failed to get them to trust themselves because this is what we're asking people to do is 
inform themselves well enough to, to validate our claims for their own satisfaction because we can't sell this to anyone. This is one of these things that you either decide for yourself that this is a good idea and support it or you wish us luck and it's not for you. And this is what we try to do is get people to play in a realm that not many people play in. Whoever thought they would be in the garbage business or <laughs> the forestry business or the liquid fuel business or the alcohol fuel, the alcohol fuel industry. And what is this higher mixed alcohol fuel anyway? It's a new world. And so we're, we're very patient. We have to be with bringing people up to speed. But what we do know, the more someone learns, typically the more, the more enthusiastic they become because they're essentially fueling their own desire for change and seeing that potential in our work. And that's the upshot. So we love the inbound interest. Uh, I encourage everyone who visits our website to read our endorsements page. And these are citizen and professional endorsements from all kinds of people, foresters, engineers, doctors, lawyers, because what I've learned as the business leader is that what holds us back isn't really so much of a money problem as it is a giant social problem mired in lack of trust because there are scientific gaps typically that we can't, I can't fill that scientific gap of another person. I can certainly serve up the appropriate information and through Q&A and discovery help fill in any blanks. And that endorsements page does a good job of explaining, people explaining in their own words how they came to know of us, why they support us, and what they are learning through that process. And I call it an emotional investment, which is maybe even more valuable than money, because if, if you don't have somebody's heart and mind in the same in the same relationship, then you, you really, it, it's not just money. It, 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 there's something more at stake here than just money. Awesome. Jay, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a lot. I'm inspired by what you do. And I think like most people listening to this, you got to be anti-human to not want to get on board. <laughs> I really appreciate yeah, really appreciate your time, and I would love to check back in six to 12 months and see how this whole thing's doing. Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, J-Tubes. And thank you all. Hey, everybody. This is your host, Eric Malzone. Don't leave yet. I have a few more requests for you. So, if you got value out of this podcast, I ask you to do a few things. Number one, go to wherever you're listening, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and go ahead and subscribe to the show. Number two, while you're there, if you feel that we earned it, please leave us a nice review. Number three, share it. Whether it be social media, email, texting, whatever it may be. I'm sure you know somebody who would get value out of this episode just like you did. So please go ahead and share it. And that's how we get the word out. So it's really valuable and super appreciative. It only takes a minute of your time. Next, if you know of somebody, including yourself, who would be a great guest for the show, please head on over to level5mentors.com, L-E-V-E-L, the number five, mentors.com. Get in touch with me. Let me know what you're thinking. Uh, make an introduction. Whatever it may be, you can also get me directly in my email, which is eric, E-R-I-C, at level5mentors.com. Lastly, if 
you just want to chat, you want to find out more, if you want to expand on some ideas, I love hearing from the audience. So go ahead and hit me up on social media. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. You also have my email already. So I love to hear from you. I'm always looking for ways to improve the show and I'm always looking to have great conversations. So don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, thank you for listening to the Black Diamond Podcast and you can expect a lot more from us.